right, now I'll appear. I was too excited to preach. Oh, man. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 4. My name is Chris Rowley. I'm one of the elders here at Calvary, and uh, excited to be able to share God's Word with you, those of you who are here in person and those joining us online. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump right into it. So God, we are entirely dependent on you right now. You're the hero of this church. You're the hero of the sermon. You're the hero of the Bible. And unless you do something here today, God, these are just words on a page. But God, we are praying and we are desperate that you would move in a powerful way as we open up your word. And God, I'm just specifically asking that today, if there is someone here that, that needs to be born again, that your Holy Spirit would move in this place today. God, that you would touch their heart in a special way to know your love, and that they would make that decision to follow you in faith and trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we're picking up where we left off last week. Last week we learned some general principles about unity. But this week we're going to get really specific, and you'll see what I mean in the second part of the sermon. We really dig into some specifics of what it looks like for a church and for individuals in the church to live together and individually in unity. So I'm going to jump right to the first command. We're going to learn two commands from God, two general commands, and then we're going to get specific, okay? Command number one that God gives to his people from Ephesians chapter 4 is this. Don't go back. Don't go back. You see, the people that he was writing to in Ephesus, they were feeling some temptation to go back to the way that they used to live before they knew Jesus. And so to those people, God says, don't go back. Let's read those verses, 17 to 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So I probably don't need to convince you this morning that people outside of the church, people that don't know Christ, they don't live like Christians. Did you notice that? I didn't need to convince you of that. But just like we learned last week, Paul is not writing this letter to the culture at large. He's writing this letter to Christians within a particular local church. And those Christians in that church were feeling some temptation to go back to the way that they used to live before they knew Jesus. And that's why Paul writes these strong words. He, he says this, this, he says, I say and I testify in the Lord. That phrase, I say and testify, it's like showing Paul's urgency. He really is serious. Don't go back, church. Don't go back to the way that you used to live. So if we were real, Calvary, if we were all real with one another and we got into a, a socially distant circle and we started telling one another about the stories of how God had rescued us as a church and how God had pulled us individually out of some dark circumstances, I think we would all be surprised. We'd be like, whoa, you used to do that before you knew Jesus? You've heard testimonies like that, right? I think we would all be surprised from the, of the darkness that God has pulled us from and brought us to the light. And Paul is saying, don't go back to that way of living. Don't do it. 
Now, we're being honest here. And if we're being honest, we have to admit that God wouldn't need to tell us not to go back unless there was something about our former way of life that may still feel a little tempting, even once we are followers of Jesus, right? I mean, he wouldn't have to say, don't go back to it, if there wasn't something about it that was kind of, sort of, pulling us back in that direction. You know what I mean? Okay, there's an allure to sin sometimes. Sometimes it can have a little allure, but it's like a, it's like a baited lure, right? On the end of a fishing line. Now, when, when I was a kid, I did not go fishing very often. But I did go fishing once in a while. One time I went fishing and I was at this lake and I, I caught a little sunfish and I reeled in the sunfish and the sunfish had the hook through his lip. So I took the little sunfish and I threw it back in the lake, put bait back on my hook, cast it out in the, in the lake again. Guess what happened? I caught the same exact fish again. And then I did the same thing again and I unhooked it and I threw it back in the lake, cast it out again. Guess what? I caught the same fish again. You know what? That same fish kept coming back to the same bait and kept getting hooked by the same hook. And God is saying to us this morning, church, don't go back. Don't get hooked again. To use the the fishing analogy just a little bit more, I don't know if any of you like fishing. Maybe next time it won't go so well. Maybe next time you'll swallow the hook. That's real bad if you're a fish. Maybe next time the hook comes in and it hooks you through the eye, catches you in the gill. Maybe the next time the fishermen won't be quite so kind and throw you back. Paul is urgently writing to them because the consequences of sin, the the effects of sin in our lives is really destructive. And he's saying, church, don't go back. Don't do it again. Don't get hooked again. Don't go back to where God has rescued you from. Command number two that God gives to the church is this. comes from verse 20 and 21. He says, Remember what you learned about Jesus. Remember what you learned about Jesus. Verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So he says, don't go back there. Don't go back again. Remember what you learned about Jesus. Remember last week we learned that God had given the church some some teachers whose job it was to instruct the church about Jesus. And now Paul's saying, Don't go back there. Remember what those people told you about Jesus. Remember what you learned about Jesus. Don't forget. Now, I know in this room, there's probably some of you that are teachers, right? And you've got kids, and you're getting ready to send your kids back to school. And you're wondering, like, what happened during COVID? Like, what happened to their brains? Are they going to remember anything? Are they going to remember a single thing from last year? You're wondering, are they going to remember math and their science. And similarly, Paul is saying to the church, hey, don't go back there. Remember what you learned in Jesus' school. That language he's using in verse 20 is almost like school language. Remember what you learned about Jesus. And now, the big idea, the main thrust of Paul's message, verse 22 to 24, is this. New people don't live like old people. And now, old people, I'm not talking about the the wonderful senior citizens at Calvary Church. Paul is talking about people that don't know God, people that, that used to be far from God. He says, verse 22 to 24, new people don't live like old people, okay? Let's read those verses, 22 to 24. 
God says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's three things going on here. Verse 22 is this phrase, put off your old self. It's almost like clothing language, like you got this jacket on or something. Put it off. Put off your old self. Get rid of your old self. Hey, any fourth graders in here? Fourth graders, don't live like you're in third grade anymore. Get rid of that third grade self. Any high school graduates, don't live like a high school freshman. Get rid of that self. You have graduated. You've moved on. Christians, get rid of your old self. Live like new people that God has made you to be. The second thing there in verse 23 is this. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. What's going on there is that the mind is the realm in which the spirit of God is at work. The, the mind is the realm where the transforming activity of God takes place. And, and God says, put off the old self, be renewed in your minds. And then verse 24, put on the new self, made in God's likeness. So get rid of the old, be transformed in your mind, and put on your new self. Well, we've been learning that God makes us new, right? God makes us new. So Paul says this morning to us, live like you are new. Live in your new identity. My boys and I, we love bugs. I, I don't know if any of you like bugs. It's okay if you don't like bugs. But we like bugs. And some of the bugs that we really like are the ones that go through a metamorphosis. They change. Often they, they grow wings and they fly away. And one bug that we think is particularly cool is the cicada. You probably hear them all the time in the summer, right? Cicadas, they spend anywhere between 2 to 17 years underground. I mean, almost their entire life is spent in the dirt. But late in their life, cicadas will come out of the dirt, and, and they crawl up out, and then they shed their exoskeleton, and then you know what they do? They fly away. They leave their exoskeleton behind, and they fly off. They literally begin a new life as a flying creature. And my boys like collecting the exoskeletons that they leave behind. But you know one thing that I learned about cicadas? They never go back. They never go back. They never start crawling again. They never go back to that old shell, that old exoskeleton. They fly away. Calvary, you're not a bunch of cicadas. Don't worry. But if you are born again, God has made you new. And God wants you to live in your newness. Live in your new identity. Get rid of your old self. You don't need it anymore. God has made us new. That's good, isn't it? Now, fortunately for us, fortunately for us, we don't need to rely only on our own willpower to be made new, okay? 
The process of being made new, it's a God process. He's the one that does that. Now, look at verse 24. Verse 24 says that our new self is created after the likeness of God. Okay, that language of being created, it's the same language that we saw in chapter 2, verse 10. It describes God working in us. God is the creator. He's the one who does the creating. This is a work of God. When we become new, he does the work in us. He makes us new creations. He's the one that changes our life. The inward transformation, it's a work of the Holy Spirit specifically. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 tells us to be renewed in our minds. Remember that? We, we just saw that. Now, there's another passage of Scripture in the Bible that really helps us to understand how this mind renewal takes place. Like, how does it take place that someone's mind is actually renewed? And I'm going to get this from a book called Titus. It's also in the Bible, if you're not familiar with the Bible. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 and verse 6. I'm going to read it for us. It says, He, God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he doesn't save us because we're good people. He doesn't save us because we practice religious rituals. He saves us by his own mercy, and he renews us when he pours out the Holy Spirit into our lives to make us new creations. So we're going to spend a couple minutes here. If, if you've been a Christian for, for quite a while, I want you to really pay close attention to what I'm about to say, okay? There's a, a long-dead French philosopher. Her name is Simone Weil. And she writes about the limitations of trying to achieve spiritual change within ourselves by our own willpower. And what she writes about is how when we try to change ourselves spiritually by our own willpower, you know what, you know what ends up happening? We become obsessive about our own self-control and we actually end up further down the road into pride because we're doing it ourselves. The result of trying to change yourself by your own willpower is that you will become more self-reliant and less God-reliant. And when we are less reliant on God to change us, you know what happens to us? It cuts us off from the one who actually causes the change in the first place. God is the transformer of us. God is the one who affects the change in us. The change is called new birth in some places of the Bible. Some places we're called a new person. Some places it calls us a new creation. The idea is there's a newness, and newness comes from God, the creator. I want to give you a couple quick important things to think about here. We could spend a long time unpacking it. We, we don't have time this morning, but if you want to talk more, I'd be happy to talk a little more about spiritual development, spiritual formation with you. But I've noticed that often Christians try to change their life by doing spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are very good. They're very important. Things like reading the Bible and praying and going to church and even fasting and things of that nature. Those are good things. 
But often Christians try to change their lives by doing spiritual disciplines, and they forget that it's not the spiritual discipline that changes us. It's the God we meet when we do the spiritual disciplines that transforms us and changes our heart. Do you see the difference? The goal is not the discipline. The goal is the God who we meet in the discipline. One of my favorite authors, he, he has a, a quote that I, I remember often. He says, the scriptures, the Bible, is a way to meet God, not meet an obligation. Have you ever met someone who's been in church for like 7,000 years, and they are the most grumpy person you've ever met? They're, they're angry, they're grumpy, they're, they're, you're like, what's going on? How does that happen that someone can be so close to the church for so long and end up so grumpy. Well, spiritual discipline pursued apart from knowing and loving God, it leads vibrant Christians to become dry, grumpy, self-focused followers of religion. Now, spiritual discipline is important. It can put us in a position to encounter God to be attentive to God, but the goal is not the discipline. The goal is always God, the one who Paul says in our text creates us in the image and likeness of God. God, the one who transforms us, is the God we meet in the discipline. The discipline is not the end, okay? Now, I'm not ready to move on from that just yet because I know that there may be another group of people listening who are, you're going to read verse 25 to verse 32. We're about to get there in one, in one minute. And there's a group of people who may be listening, and you, you might feel tempted to read verse 25 to 32 and miss how important it is to become born again and to become a new person before you start trying to live like a Christian, okay? Verse 25 and 32, it kind of gives some guidelines for how Christians should live. But there's some people who are not Christians yet. We're so thankful that you're here with us this morning. We're so thankful that you're tuning in. But you need to know it's more important for you to understand what it means to be a Christian than for you to start just trying to follow the rules that, that the Bible teaches, okay? God is not calling you to adopt a new set of rules. He's inviting you to receive a new heart, and then from that new heart is going to flow a new way of living, okay? So look quickly at verse 32. Verse 32, it ends with this phrase, as God in Christ forgave you, okay? That should tip us off to the fact that the people that Paul is writing to, they are people who have already been forgiven by God. They're already included in God's family, okay? The guidelines we're about to press into, those are for people who know God. Let, let me just go one step further here. I'm sure that a few people have probably just brought your kids to college, or maybe you've brought your kids to college in the past. At some point, maybe you went to college. Now, when you're visiting a, a college or a university, you go to the campus, you check it out, you look at the buildings, you go to the cafeteria, you see the dorms, talk to administration, find out how much money they're going to take from you. And you're not expected, as a visitor of the college, to abide by the code of conduct for students, are you? Now, I know there's some general things that everybody should abide by, but 
You're not expected to live by the code of conduct of students until you actually are enrolled as a student in the college. Once you're enrolled as a student in the college, you got to live by the code of conduct of the school. Now, you could own a Harvard sweatshirt. You could read Harvard's books. You could cheer for Harvard's football team. But you know what? That doesn't make you a student at Harvard. I would know firsthand, because I'm not, and I never was. But in the church, there can be people that wear the, they wear the Jesus shirt, go to church, maybe even know some parts of the Bible. But you're not yet in God's family. And if you're not yet in God's family, I want to encourage you this morning. What we're about to press into is some specific guidelines for God's family. God wants you first to become a member of the family before you start worrying about following all these guidelines. Okay? Verse 25 to 32, we're going there right now. It's a code of conduct for Jesus' family. If you're not in the family yet, you're invited to the family. But that's more important first than you just trying to follow these rules that I'm going to go through. So you ready? That's my super long disclaimer. I want to make sure that we understand that these rules... These things that Christians do, they are not what makes us Christians. It's a new birth that makes us Christians. So let's read verse 25 to 32. And we're going to answer question number one. How do new people live? So if you've been made new, this is how you live. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So if you're new, if you've been made new by God, this is how we live. This is how our church can live in unity. Number one, we speak the truth. Verse 25, don't lie. Tell the truth. Church, our church, Calvary Church, is supposed to be a place where truth-telling is normal, even the hard truth. Even when it hurts, truth must be spoken in love. There's three realms where I think we can think about speaking the truth as a church. Number one is this. In humility, we can tell one another how we're actually doing. You don't have to fake it here. You can tell people how you're really doing. And if you're not doing well, you can tell the truth about that. We would appreciate that. That's how we grow. That's how we bind ourselves together in unity. Especially as we pursue racial reconciliation, as we have difficult conversations as a church, we've got to be truth tellers. We've got to be listeners who are willing to listen when another tells their story. 
Second area where truth needs to be spoken, we need to tell the truth about God, about each other, and about the world. We need to be truth speakers about our God. And the third area where truth-telling is going to be very important for us as a church is this. In our current culture, in our age, truth seems to be up for grabs in the media. Am I the only one that noticed that? I don't think so, okay? Be careful where you get your truth. And be careful what you confidently assert to be truth. I don't need to tell you. There's a whole lot of different ideas out there about just about everything right now. Be careful where you get the truth. Be careful what you confidently say is the truth. A Facebook post, probably not the same as a scholarly journal. So be careful where we get the truth. The second specific area that God lays out for us here, verse 26 and 27, he says, beware of the dangers of anger. Now, verse 26 describes something that could be called righteous anger, and it is possible for Christians to have righteous anger, righteous indignation about certain things that are wrong. It, it is good, it is okay, it is appropriate to be angry about evils, angry about injustices, but, a big but, there is a fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger, and that's why God gives us a warning here. The majority of times in my life when I've been angry, I don't think it was righteous anger. Usually when people are angry, it's because their pride has been hurt, they didn't get their own way. Ultimately, it's up to you and God if your anger is righteous anger, but be careful, because a lot of times anger likes to hide and make it seem like it's righteous when it really is just selfish. Now, God puts a time limit on dealing with anger. This is interesting. Verse 26, God says, if you've got anger going on, deal with it before sunset. If you're angry with someone, don't go to bed until you took care of it. And oh my goodness, this week, whew, Kelly and I, my, Kelly, my wife, we had a discussion. You could call it a disagreement. Some people call it disagreements. Now all week I've been, I've been working through this text and I'm, I'm reading this text in Ephesians that says you've got to deal with it before sunset. And as we're having our discussion, have any of you had a discussion with your spouse or with a friend? Okay, I'm not the only one. As we were having our discussion, I'm thinking the whole time, oh my goodness, I gotta, I gotta fix this before the sun goes down, okay? I'm just letting you know, I'm trying to apply this stuff to my life too. Not just preaching it, I'm trying to apply this to me. We've gotta deal with anger when it happens as quickly as possible. Why? Verse 27 tells us, because it's a really easy way for Satan to gain a foothold in the life of a believer. Have you ever had a fight with someone like in the car on the way to church and then you show up in the, the worship service? How did that worship experience go for you that day? <laughs> Probably not that good, right? It's, when it's happened to me, I spend most of my time like praying that, that you know, so-and-so would change their mind or something like that. It's difficult to worship God when we're living in anger, when we've got this anger going on. God says, deal with it quickly. If we're going to be unified as a church, we got to deal with it quickly and lovingly. 
Verse 28 tells us, we're not going to spend a ton of time here, don't steal, engage in productive work. The interesting thing about this section here is that he actually gives the reason why we should engage in productive work, not for ourselves, not for our family, not just for our concerns, but so that we can help the people who are in need, okay? Calvary, God has given us resources. God has given us jobs. Our jobs ultimately are for glorifying God and for building up his body and helping those in need. Verse 29, he says, guard your lips. Speak to build up other people. I won't spend a ton of time talking about what corrupting talk is in verse 29. This, don't worry, this sermon is rated PG. I'm not going to give you a lot of examples of what corrupting talk looks like, but the Bible does give us a couple questions that we could ask so that we can know if the things we're about to say are, are appropriate or not appropriate. So you ready for these questions? Seriously, if you ask these kinds of questions before you speak, it's going to go a long ways towards us being the kind of church that builds one another up, okay? So question number one to ask, according to Paul, is, is this question, or is what I'm about to say going to build up the person who hears it? And the second question is this, is what I'm about to say going to give grace to the person who hears it? Our speech is so important. One of the quickest ways that we could divide Calvary Church would be the way that we talk about one another. Whether it's the way that you talk about Peter and the staff and his team, or the way that we talk about one another sitting here. A quick way that we could divide our church is by gossiping, by speaking inappropriately about one another. Let's be careful as a church, says the Bible, how we talk about one another. Verse 30, kind of summing up this idea, it's really connected to our speech, but I think it's kind of a general principle. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, okay? It seems like the context here is showing us that anything we're doing that is sinful, that is not building up one another, it's causing sadness to the Holy Spirit, God who is with us. It makes God sad when we don't live up to our names. And then, verse 31, we get quite a nasty list of stuff. You ready for verse 31? Verse 31, he says, instead of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Say that 10 times fast. That's like the worst list of stuff. Instead of that stuff, let's be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving towards one another. Have you ever exploded in anger towards someone? Like, after you did it, you just said, oh man, I don't know where that came from. Well, I know where it came from. It came from bitterness that often takes root in our hearts. And it just kind of simmers there, festers there, and then all of a sudden, something triggers it, and bam, it explodes in all those nasty things, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Beware of bitterness. Beware of letting it take root in your heart. One time as a boy, I woke up in the morning, looked out the window, and my dad's pickup truck had sunk into the road. And uh, apparently there was a sinkhole beneath the surface. We had no idea. From the outside, it looked like it, looked like it just happened all of a sudden, but it really had been growing for a long time. And one morning, a little rain was all that it took. It triggered it, and his pickup sunk into the road. 
Beware of bitterness. It's like that. It simmers beneath the surface. It can explode and it can cause so much division in the church. So all those things we just covered, those are some guidelines for how new people live. If you've been made new, this is how you live, which takes us to question number two, the most important and the last question we're going to ask today. Question number two is this. Have you been made new by God? As you think about your life this morning, August 30th, 2020, have you been made new by God? Has God caused you to be born again? Have you become a new person? Because honestly, if if you're looking at your life and you don't see any evidence of the new person that is described here, it might be that you are not a new person. It may be that God has not yet made you new and you need to be born again. And God wants to make you new because he loves you so much. You may need to be connected to Jesus this morning. The Bible calls Jesus the vine. The vine. Anyone who's a gardener knows that the vine is the source of life. God wants to give you life far greater than you could ever understand. Verse 18, it it tells us that there are some people who are alienated from God. Are you alienated from God? Are you separated from the source of life? If you're angry and bitter, gossiping, selfish, only concerned for yourself, you should be concerned that maybe you are not connected to the source of life. If God says in the Bible, and we just read it this morning, if God says this is how new people act, but you're acting like all over here, you should be concerned. You've not been made a new person, maybe. Are you alienated from the life of God? If that's you, I want to encourage you. Talk to someone before you leave this building. Tell them you want to be born again. Tell them you want God to make you new because God wants to make you new. He wants you to experience the new life in Jesus. And if you're listening this morning, I want you to call or email the church. Tell them you want to be made new. You want to be born again. We would be so happy to help you begin that journey with Jesus. New birth, it happens when we completely trust Jesus for our salvation, for our forgiveness of sins, and we let him lead us as the new master of our life. And at that moment, God causes us to be made new. And as we read today, God pours his Holy Spirit into our hearts and causes the change that we cannot cause by ourselves. Are you done trying to save yourself? Are you done trying to follow your own plans? Are you ready to follow Jesus? Don't leave this building until you have made that choice. Without talking to someone, about how you can be born again. And I know that there's a second group of people here. You have been born again. 
You have been made new by God. But maybe as we've been reading this this morning, there was something you read, something that, that stood out to you, and you're realizing, oh, I think I've been grieving the Holy Spirit in that area. I think I've been making God sad in that area. You don't have to live that way anymore. You don't. You can leave it behind. I want to encourage you today, turn from that way of living. You are God's beloved child. He loves you so much, so far more than you could ever imagine, and he will welcome you back lovingly with open arms. The Bible says that if we confess, if we admit our sin to God, he will forgive us and clean us and purify us from all that unrighteousness. Come back to God if you've wandered. And finally, for all of us, the scriptures we've read in chapter 4, they kind of set the course for us as a church. This is how a church united lives under the leadership of Jesus. Are you ready to walk with Jesus in this path? Let's pray. God, we thank you. I know that in this room there are so many people who have been born again. And we thank you and we praise you. It's a miracle of God. And Lord, for anyone here this morning that they, they just don't know if their sins have been forgiven, they don't know if they have been made new, I pray, Lord, that you would work in their hearts and that they would not leave this place until they've had the chance to talk with someone. And Father, for those listening, Lord, I pray that you would move in their hearts. God, I pray that you would make us the kind of church that is united, walking together in lockstep with you. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.